0: Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning joining me today on trial law review is Keith McNick he's an incredibly talented litigator and very successful trial lawyer who practically lives inside of the courtroom Keith is senior trial counsel for the Orlando- based law firm of Morgan and Morgan the largest personal injury law firm in America his practice focuses on being in the courtroom trying all sorts of personal injury and commercial contingency cases. At Morgan & Morgan, there are departments that handle every type of contingency fee plaintiff cases, general PI, MedMal, product liability, mass tort, commercial contingency, and so on. Keith's job is to try those cases with all the departments, and when they don't settle, join forces with other trial lawyers in the firm handling them. Uh, and I'm going to read to you his background because it's impressive. He has handled high-profile cases and has been interviewed by Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes. Over the years, his list of clients includes judges, elected officials, law firms, and world-famous musicians. He has handled such high-profile cases as the suit against Britney Spears by her former manager, the suit by the Backstreet Boys against their former manager, the suit by Harlem Globetrotter legends including Curly Neal and Lark Lemon against the Harlem Globetrotters, the civil suit against Casey Anthony, and the Tailwind case against CNN and Time Magazine, one of the largest defamation cases of the last decade. He has been honored as a member of the Florida Legal Elite, Florida Super Lawyers, Best Lawyers in America, 2013 Lawyers of the Year, and Martindale's Bar Registry of Preeminent Lawyers. Mr. Mitnick has obtained a long list of verdicts in excess of a million dollars, In the last few years, he has jury verdicts of 1 million, 1.35 million, 2.4 million, 2.7 million, 5.1 million, 18.1 million, 27 million, 40 million, and a 90 million, which was the seventh largest verdict in America for 2010. He is a frequent seminar presenter for plaintiff's lawyers across the country, sharing his cutting-edge lawsuit strategies. He is the author of three books dedicated to helping trial lawyers improve their craft. And just like me, he did his undergraduate degree at the University of Central Florida and graduated from FSU College of Law. Keith, welcome to Trial Law Review. Great to have you as a guest and thank you for joining me today.
1: It's my pleasure. You're an old friend, man, it's good to see you and I'm glad to be on here with you.
0: So before um, talking about all the law stuff, I, I know you grew up in Eustis, which is a pretty small town. Uh, what was it like for you in a small town of Florida growing up? Because when we moved to Orlando, from New Jersey in 1980. I, I know it felt like Orlando was a small town back then, but I imagine Eustace was probably pretty sleepy back in that that time period. So I'm curious about what it was like.
1: I can tell you this, we would go to an exciting day to the big city was to drive over to Orlando, which back then was even smaller than it is now. So it was great. We, you know, it was it's the classic, people didn't lock their doors we got on our bicycles and, and rode around all day and as long as you were back for dinner no one worried what was happening to you and it was just a, it was a great place to grow up small town everybody knew each other both my parents were school teachers so it just um it, it would be a little small for me to live there now but growing up I, I it was fantastic
0: i i imagine like me you've seen an immense amount of change oh, okay. in orlando since uh, when you were, when you were young,
1: it has changed so dramatically. The, the, and I've watched the city change. It's just amazing how how it's grown, how it's just changed in its overall feel, and it's been all ups and downs, and it's been kind of a roller coaster ride for the city. But I think it's heading in the right direction, and is a a, a a nice city to be in because it's a good medium to small sized city with plenty to offer. But not overwhelming. I love going to New York City, but I, I haven't lived in a place that big, and I think I'd probably rather not, even though I love to go visit.
0: And it's been amazing to see your law firm grow with the city. the The explosion of Morgan and Morgan is is pretty impressive, along with the growth of the city.
1: It, it's stunning to me. Yeah, you know, when I was there, everyone knew everybody, and you know we were on a couple floors, and now we're all over the country, and. I take phone calls all the time. We do a thing when I'm not in trial, where lawyers in our firm can just click on a link, and it'll just set a time up for a phone call. And we do phone calls all day long, helping people strategize and deal with perceived problems and cases. And I get calls all the time. I have to say, "Hey, good to meet you. Where where are you from?" So it's a it's a different animal. But it's I'm, I'm proud of what what John's done with it and what the firm's done.
0: Yeah, I get it because we are over a hundred team members now with Synergy and it's funny because I just, I I can't keep everybody's name straight even at a hundred. So I can't imagine, you know, when you get to 200, 300, 500, you know, that, that, that many people it's, it's so hard, but I hate the idea that I don't know everybody by name because that's what I want.
1: (laughs) I I miss the knowing everybody. Um, but I do love strength in number, so it's worth the trade-off.
0: Yeah. So in in doing some prep for this episode, I watched a video uh, and you talked about how you became interested in becoming a lawyer um, and you talked about a book uh, that you read as a kid and you said you read it twice, uh, which appealed to your sense of standing up to, to bullies. Can you talk a little bit about it and its relevance for what you do today?
1: It was a book. I actually found it years later. I mean, as in a couple of years ago, and bought a used copy of it. I didn't even know, it took me a while to even be sure what the name was. And it was The, um, the Magician. And it really was a criminal case because I always thought I wanted to be a criminal lawyer. It wasn't until a professor of mine that I did legal research for in law school said, I said, he said, I wanted to be introduced to any lawyers he knew in Orlando that were trial lawyers. And he I said, I know the two of the best. And I'll introduce you to both of them. And they happen to be partners. And I flew down, first time I'd ever been on an airplane with them. And he's, and, and I'm assuming they're criminal. He goes, I said, and what are they doing? And he started telling me, I said, I didn't really know what civil lawyers did. And I said, no, I want to be a criminal lawyer. And I'm sitting, I'm on this plane, first time in my life, going to meet some guys who do civil law. And I thought, boy, I should have been clear. And he said, no, and listen, there's some great criminal lawyers. But by and far, there are more high-caliber lawyers doing the civil practice. I don't know if it's true or not, but I said, okay, and met him, and then never did criminal. But way back to this book, it was a book about a guy that was a big bully who uh, beat this kid who was kind of a dorky kid, sweet kid, beat him almost to death. And it was the criminal case against him, and he hired this lawyer who was really good. And he ended up, near the end of the book, it was a not guilty. And that guy was clearly the villain. It was a disappointing end but the family couldn't stand the lawyer because he got the guy off. But at the end, the kid had taken, got beat up, had taken some classes in karate or some martial arts and got good at it, and the bully corners him again, and going to beat the mess out of him a second go around, and the kid hits him with a palm and smashes his nose back in his brain, and the bully dies. And the book ends with the family calling the lawyer they hated to represent their son. And I, there was some, even though it wasn't like I, I want to wear a white hat, and it didn't feel very white hat to me. But there was something about the power to make a difference um, that transcended which side. Even the person that didn't like him wanted him when he needed him, and that felt good to me because I was an old football player. I grew up in a town where we had our share of bullies, um, and I, I cannot stand bullies um, it's probably the driving force behind what I do. Some people litigate on the, for the plaintiff side out of just, they care so much for their client. That's all that matters. Don't get me wrong. I care deeply about my clients, but there's another force that's probably even stronger, which is I hate injustice. And I see when someone is trying to get away with an injustice, I see the old bullies from my high school and it just, I feel like I'm the anti-bully. That's my my calling to stand up to him. That's why if I lose a case, it breaks my heart because I feel like I let the bully beat my client. And I, I, my job was to keep that from happening.
0: Well, to add on to that, you, you wrote something entitled A Reminder of Why What We Do Is Right, um, which was on LinkedIn, and I'm pretty sure I shared it as it was particularly meaningful to me with Synergy's mission and my own personal experience after being struck by a car while cycling, can you talk about the dichotomy between the term accident and negligence in your mind and the importance of that in seeking justice in the courtroom? I just really loved what you wrote uh, in the closing sentence of being passed that torch as an honor, especially when you realize who you're carrying it for, people who picked you to stand up for them when they couldn't stand up for themselves.
1: Yeah, that is, every time I say that, I feel like I'm on the verge of tearing up and I I cuz we all you know what we do is hard. I mean it's really hard work. People think we stand up and fancy words come out of our mouth and we drive a fancy car and it's this cool easy life. It is a cool life, but it ain't easy. It's the work, the level of sacrifice, and pieces of your soul you give and you never get to turn it off and be done and I I'm, I'm not complaining. I wouldn't do anything else, but it is hard. And I like to remind people that, you know, at the end of the day, there are a couple of things I remind. I remind that, that it's like you come out of college and go to the pros. And you always hear the saying, the game's so much faster, these athletes. And it takes them a while to acclimate because it's just so much faster. And the courtroom, when you're younger, seems like it's going so fast. How am I supposed to remember this, this, this? Objections and evidence and, and keep my cool and what am I say what I wanted to say. And It's overwhelming. And I tell young lawyers look, it's okay to be nervous. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to be polished. Come with a winning package that you develop without the stresses of a courtroom and deliver it with your integrity. And it's okay if it's choppy and not all pretty. That'll come in time. But the good news is the game slows down the more you do it. And later in life, when you get old and bald-headed like I am, it slows down. I think of it like Neo in Matrix. I, you can see the bullets coming and say, well, I can do this or I can do that, and I'm going to do this. And it all happened as fast, but Neo you was in slow motion. So it's not like, okay, it'll slow down after three trials, and now I'm done. No more fun. Yeah, It just keeps growing. But at the end of the day, through what we give and how hard it is, because it is, or think about this, how many other jobs are there that aren't professional athletes where there's someone on the other side whose sole purpose in life, and they're trained and skilled and paid, and their sole purpose in life is to make you F up every single thing you're trying to accomplish. That's a tough way. But here's the, the silver lining and the honor of it all. What other job is there where someone picks you to stand up for them when they couldn't stand up for themselves? And, and every time I say that, I think, this is important work. And we, and we shouldn't whine, it's hard. We should say thank you because it is hard, but hard in a way that is so fulfilling. And one of the things you said is the difference between a negligent and an accident. We all know on the defense side, they love the word accident. They'll say it a thousand times, why? And I always say, don't say if it's a car crash, don't say accident, why? Because accidents happen. Say crash, why? They make you cringe or collision. Don't say accident. And I finally I got, I had a lawyer who I was given a copy of a transcript from Ford Dyer because I always like to find what the other side's routine is. And he loves to do this thing about accidents, and he has to deal with his kid through a baseball, and it broke a window. And it, he went over to the neighbor and said, look, I'll, I'll take care of the window. And he goes, well, let me get an estimate. And then he got his estimate. and come over next, he's trying to tell me, well, my the ball hit the floor and it scraped the floor and it bounced off some cabinets and I want new cabinets. And, um, you know, he's got this whole long stick that he does. And, you know, the gist is, look, I'll pay for the broken window, but you're asking for too much. And I thought it was pretty, pretty crafty. So I developed some stuff to counter it and I did it and boy Dyer, so he couldn't get off the ground with it. And that's where this distinction started coming in my mind. And I realized it's important we do it in every case to set the record straight. There is, What is an accident? An accident is I I accidentally step on my dance partner's shoe dancing. Your kid throws a baseball and throws it over daddy's glove. Those are pure accidents. There's a difference between that and negligence. Negligence is an official wrong under the civil code of justice. It rises to the level of official Civil wrong. It is the failure to use reasonable care. It means someone did something unreasonable and dangerous that caused someone else harm. And that's night and day from an accident. Accidents wouldn't rise to that level to be an official civil wrong. And when they admit negligence, I say, so they're admitting to an official wrong under the Civil Justice Code. They fail to use reasonable care. It rises to that level, and they can't even defend that. And that changes the posture of, of, of accidents. And, and it's important because accident does have that. They didn't mean it. Well, we know, no one says they meant it, but how did it happen? Were you dancing with a dance partner and you got, your foot got a little clumsy and you just aren't a real good dancer? Well, you, there's nothing wrong with that. That's different than I'm fooling around on my phone, not looking what I'm doing, and someone rear ends you and tears you up for the rest of your life. That's, those aren't the same animals at all.
0: And that part is what really hit me as, as someone who sometimes I will use the word accident when I was struck by a a car, but you know, the fact of the matter is I was in a bike lane, had the right of way. The driver was not paying attention and hit me and me as a pedestrian, you know, completely vulnerable and caused pretty significant, serious injuries. And it, it, it isn't an accident. It, I was struck by a car. You know, because he was not paying proper attention to pedestrians in a bike lane.
1: He didn't mean it, but that doesn't make it okay. You know, I I don't mean if someone doesn't mean to hit a kid in a school zone when they go through 60 miles an hour. But that doesn't make it an accident when they hit a kid.
0: Yeah. So what is at the heart of your passion for being inside the courtroom? Because, you know, we talked a little bit about the the. The idea of the being, being the one that stands up to the bully, but actually the the passion for being you know the in, in the courtroom in, in the middle of that fight. I
1: guess because I did play sports when I was younger, I just kind of grew up with that competitive nature. I like the challenge of it. Um, I feel right. I use the word righteous, I feel righteous. I don't go. I'm not a mercenary. If I don't believe in the case, I don't go. I thank goodness I'm at a point in my career, and I don't work for insurance companies telling me you go like it or not. So if I, I don't believe, it's not if it's a hard case. I, I rarely try easy cases. They're almost always hard. If they're going to trial, you can bet they're, they're, they're losable and they're tough. But I, in my heart of hearts, believe we're right. And once I believe I'm right, then there is a, a burning desire to avoid an injustice on my watch. And you get in a courtroom and you're, you're mentally, sometimes damn near physically, hand-to-hand combat. with a, a, The better the lawyer, the more I'd rather have a weak lawyer on the other side because I want to win for my client. It ain't about my enjoyment. It's about my client's justice and recognition of their loss. But when I do have a good lawyer, I don't complain about it because it truly makes the makes the battle all that much more interesting because you get a leg up, they get a leg up. And, and it sounds a little bit like a game, but in my mind, it's not. This is serious business. It's not a game. Um, and that takes away a little of the fun of it, but it adds a whole lot of importance to it, substance to it. We're not out there shooting hoops. and You want to win real bad, but afterwards, what's the difference? This is for a lifetime for somebody. So it, it is invigorating. It's exciting. It's And look, people say, how can you spend so much time in the courtroom? And I say number one, if you didn't have to do all the hard stuff, I'm not doing interrogatories. I'm not doing complaints. I'm not running the hearings. Um, I'm not answering you know, interrogatories and, and all of the. I'm not doing the jury instructions and all of that heavy lifting. That's so important. Um, and I enjoyed it when I did it, but it is, that takes a toll. So if all you had to do was the end part in the courtroom, you could do it a whole lot more. And it wouldn't be, it's not as overwhelming sounding as it is if I was working every one of those cases up, I couldn't do it. So it's not as hard as it sounds, although it does take a big toll because it's so stressful. But on the other hand, I say, look, you know, I'm a nice guy. I'm a good husband, but I'm not great at a lot of things. I got one thing I'm really blessed to be good at, and that's in, in that courtroom. And so I say, you know, I'm in the courtroom, I feel special. I get out of the courtroom, I feel pretty average. So where do you think I want to spend my time? We all want to feel special. So I'd rather be in the courtroom where I'm feeling good or quietly with my wife who makes me feel special too. But just day-to-day life, you don't want me on your golf team. You don't, you know, I just, there's not, I don't have hobbies. This is it.
0: I'm with you. Well, so you you are pretty unique in that you're in trial on all kinds of cases almost every month and sometimes several times a month. How does that help you? From your perspective on tactics employed by the other side, you talked a little bit about that a moment ago, um, and how you develop strategies to combat what the other side's doing because that's that's an evolutionary process, right?
1: Always is. That's part of the joy. Is it is, it, it it's it, it, it's like people that really do love golf, which I, I'm terrible at it and I gave it up. But I think one of the reasons people love it is you never really master it. You know, there's always more to do with it. And what we do in the courtroom is that way. There, it's, it's a constant evolution, sometimes more like a revolution. And, and that allows, if you're wired in a way that you like, you're kind of a hunter and gatherer, and you're an inventor, and you like the, what I call the art of outsmarting, um, the fun part that sets you apart. That's, net, it's an endless, endless vat of the, the best wine. If that's the wine you want to drink is those challenges. And so, there is this being in the courtroom so often. When I had my own law firm, and I'd try one, two, three trials a year, every now and then none. And I'd come away from trial and I'd always come away with some ideas that I thought, "Man, this is going to make a difference." Next case I have, but the next case would be eight months later, and you know I'd go be scrambling. Where are my notes? I was going to do this, and or you wouldn't even think to go look for your notes. So it, it was hard to implement this this evolution, and now living in the courtroom. I'm in this week, I'm in the next week, I'm off a week, I'm in again. Maybe I got a lull for three weeks, so I'm in again. You start seeing patterns in the defense, really. They must do sem- seminars and everybody does the same thing. It's, it's not a coincidence, they all do a whole bunch of they. They'll have their own unique twist, but there's a package they deliver that looks so, so similar. And so I get to see that package. And I get to see when they start to change it a little. I hope some of their changes are in response to things I'm doing to them. But then I'll change and see what they're doing. So being in the courtroom so often gives me this unique perspective where I'm really seeing not just this, what they're doing in this case, but what they're up to globally. And if you're right and they're wrong, and if that case, you shouldn't be over there, if you're right and they're wrong, I don't care what strategy they come up with. There is always a way to beat it. You may lose the case because you got an unfair jury, or an unfair judge, or your client just tanks and you know starts changing their story. I mean, there are things that are out of your control, but you're not going to lose if you're right, by, because you didn't do your part. So long as you're constantly aware of what it is they're going to try to pull off an injustice, what is their strategy, and how can I take it from them? And so I'm in, It's a unique combination of a one-of-a-kind job that I just tried cases and a natural-born problem solver, and I put those two together, and a whole lot of stuff's come out of it that really, some of the things I used to worry about, I'm just like, I don't worry about it at all anymore because I know I have the answer to it. And I know it's going to work unless, you know, we get bit by one of those other things you can't control.
0: Well, so you do a lot to help other child lawyers uh, with their craft from the things that you've learned. And you you lecture, you do podcast, you, you blog, you write books. Why do you do all of that?
1: I, 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 a couple of reasons. I think it's in me. Like I said, I had two school teacher parents. So I think I have the teacher gene in my blood. But... Even more than that is I did work for those guys that my uh, professor introduced me to. And I, I clerked with them and then worked for them, became a partner very young with them, and then went out and had my own firm and before I joined with Morgan & Morgan. And those guys, those two guys that my professor said they're two of the best in, in, in Florida, and they were, and they were very different, but I learned so much from those guys. And I think back, what if I had not gone there? What if I'd gone another route and landed with somebody that was an okay lawyer or or not a good lawyer, or maybe not an ethical lawyer, for God's sake. That would have been even worse. I just think how my career would have been so much different, so much less, but for those two men that did so much for me. And... Um, I know everybody doesn't get that lucky. They don't get that fortunate. They don't get that blessed. And so I feel like, you know, I had it and it's my calling to pass it on in the best way I can. And there's no better way than have a great mentor. But what's the next best thing? I am in a unique position. I do have all this information. I have created all these systems that work. And I thought, why would I just hog that? Or why would I just share it with my partners? What about if I could share it across the country and anyone wanted to hear it? Then I could go to my grave going, you know what? You did really put a lot of effort into passing on these torches to as many hands as you possibly could. Young, old, very experienced, got some new, new ways to approach it. Young, you've actually sent them in the right direction. And honest to goodness, when I, when I am down to my last breath, I'm not going to be counting big verdicts, they matter to me, don't get me wrong, or even small verdicts, they were hard to get. They will all matter. But the things I'm going to think about that really are really going to be fulfilling to me is looking in someone's face and hearing them afterwards say, or getting an email, I, I read your book, I did this, I want to tell you about this verdict I got. I wouldn't have gotten it anyhow. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for what you've done for our profession. And I hear that, and and, and it's easy to go, well, okay, so you you know think you're a big shot. Of course, your ego likes the stroke. I mean, I'm not going to be silly and say no, but that's not the part that matters. That's so fleeting. The part that matters and sticks with me is knowing you're making a difference. And, and I know it because I'm hearing it back from people. And that to me is like I've, I've received so many gifts. It's a gift back that it, it matters to me.
0: All right. Well, so I'm going to ask you uh, to share some of that gift here. So your podcast is dedicated to sharing your art of outsmarting, which you already mentioned, uh, which gives trial prep exercises that can block the defense and turn the case in favor of the plaintiff. If you had to highlight only the top five things to help other trial lawyers from those insights you give, what would they be?
1: That's a hard question.
0: If you want to, if you want to go, if you want to go above five, that's fine. You know, obviously.
1: That's a hard question. I can take up the next eight hours listing all the ones I think that I would hate to leave off the list, but, but let me, I'll I'll hit some of the most important ones that come to mind. Um, a, A fairly recent one that I've recently come up with, and I really think it is. It's a substantial move in the right direction, I'm, and I, every, everyone who listen to me now has to hear me talk about it, because I know what a difference it makes. And that is, we all tend to think that trials are one big, he said, she said, one big fight over the facts. And they, it isn't. If you really think about your cases, the vast majority of the facts aren't in dispute. People are, it is one huge dispute over what's the right conclusion. Here's a fixed fact. We all agree was isn't a lot of visible property damage. We all agree the person didn't treat for a year. There's a gap in treatment. We all agree they had a crash a month before. Whatever the fa- and I'm using car crash because that's the most universal. I do all kinds, but I like to keep it in that vein because everybody, most people do those or have done them, so it's a good example to give. So we got all these fixed facts, so why do we need a jury? Because there's this dispute over the, we say this is the right conclusion, they say this is the right conclusion. And it is the space between the fixed fact and the conclusion where A, bias comes into play and will destroy your case, and B, where you do your best work. It's where you can shine and make a difference. You can't change the damn facts. But you sure as hell can change the conclusion. That's what you do. So that seems such a simple thing, but it is such an expansive concept. Let me give you an example. When I do jury selection now, I've added, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I, you know, I do the little analogy on the front like you know, pie-eating contest so people understand how a subtle, unintentional, a subtle bias can have an unintentional but profound impact on the outcome. And jurors go, oh, I see. So now they don't think they're an unfair person acknowledging this may not be the right case for them, that they – that the one side may have a strike against it, the other side may have a little advantage. And they realize that's human nature. It's not me being weak-minded or unfair person. So that was one of my developments that's at the heart of the first book, Don't Eat the Bruises. But I've got it. I still use that. But I've got a new little analogy I attach to it that deals with this new revelation. And so I go through, I start out with, before I do the pie contest, I start out with most, and I'm talking to the jury again, my name's Keith Mitnick. And And I'm going to be asking a question about life experiences, opinions, or beliefs you have that could potentially impact your conclusion from the facts. And I say your conclusion from the facts because you're not going to change facts. And most people think, and then I go through basically the explanation I did and use my hands in the circle in the middle, and I explain that to them. And then I add this little analogy I say, and it can have a big impact, even though the facts are the facts. Because a lot of folks will say, the facts are the facts, but those of us that work in courtrooms like this say, not so fast. The facts are the beginning of the process, not the end. Imagine if we had a criminal case. This isn't, but if there was a criminal case, and the prosecutor wanted to convict someone of a very serious crime, and he knew in order to get a conviction, the jury would have to believe his star witness, and his star witness was a police officer. And there were two jurors sitting on that jury box. One of them didn't believe police officers, didn't trust police officers. The other tended to, to trust them more than other people. They listened to the exact evidence from the exact witness in the same courtroom, shoulder to shoulder. And one of them would say, I don't believe him, not guilty. And the other one would say, I do believe him, guilty. And they're both honest people. They're both doing their very best. But their life experiences and opinions had an impact. That's what I mean by... It's not simply the evidence. It's the evidence plus reality that those feelings and experiences can impact conclusions over and above the evidence. No one's gonna put their finger in their ears and ignore the evidence, but the conclusions are vulnerable to those experiences. Does everybody understand that? Yeah, let me give you one more example because I think it helps if everyone understands why I'm asking what it answers I'm asking. It's a respect to you and I think it makes the process work better. If we were having a competition, you see who had the best pies. It was down to two pies. And I go into that part of it. But that new little recognition, I've had a judge tell me that is the best explanation I've ever heard of how bias affects people. And you know what else it does? When the defense or someone comes along later and tries to get the jurors who said, oh yeah, you got a strike against you, I, 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 I'm not sure I could base my decision solely on the evidence and maybe the evidence plus. The defense wants to come in and, quote, rehabilitate them, because they want the unfair jury. They want that advantage. It's not allowed, but they get it often. And so what do they do? They try to say, well, I think maybe you're confused, and I just want to be clear. Can you, if, If we present the evidence, will you base your decision on the evidence we give you and be fair? Yes. And then they argue, okay, rehabilitated. They're fine. This goes at the heart of that. Because right before I sit down, I'll say, I just want to make sure, and i read off the names of the folks that gave answers for valid cause challenges. I just want to make sure, is anyone confused? No. Anyone want to change their answer? Because I'm about to sit down, I probably won't be able to ask any more questions, and but goodness sake, if you change it, I want to know so I can talk to you about it. Find out why. No. Okay. Um, and does everyone understand that when I ask you these questions, what you were telling me is that... You cannot assure that your decision will be based solely on the evidence. It may be the evidence plus those feelings coming into play because the evidence plus reality. Yes. And if you're asked about it, that will be your answer. Yes. So can I now sit down and rest assured that was your final answer on that subject? Yes. Now, the defense gets up and says, well, now you listen to the evidence and you'll watch and the jurors and go, yeah, what was that? But the evidence plus, that's the problem. Because it's a trick question you're going to base your decision on the evidence. Who the hell isn't? And I realize it isn't that they're not basing their decision on the evidence. It's that it's not just the evidence. It's those feelings came into play. So suddenly, those valid cause challenges come easier, and they're easier to protect and hold on to at the tail end. And the last piece, I don't want to spend the whole time on this. You can tell this when I'm excited about it. It's a new one. But it it makes a difference in in the case, how I work a case. Because I look at it and go, okay, these are the facts. They're arguing this conclusion, and I think they're wrong. It ought to be this conclusion. And then I spend my time thinking, what is it about the circumstances? From what perspective is it that will make it most clear this is the right answer, even though these facts remain the same? And that's where you start having these revelations. I know how we can take that away from them by recognizing it, all the way down to something this simple. You've got their expert on the stand, and you say, well. You, you, or you can wait till closing. Say, so, you know, they got that expert they brought in here. Sounds like he's giving you facts and he's got a lot of impressive credentials. He wasn't giving you a single fact. You know what he's giving you? His conclusion from the facts. The problem is, he's hand picked and paid by these guys all the time. So, you know, his conclusion isn't worth much. And suddenly it's not some big impressive fact. Yeah, it's just his just him spouting something off from his conclusion, and he would never be able to sit on this jury because he's clearly biased. He's hired by the other side now. you got to acknowledge we hired the people on our side too, but, but it's a way to bring an expert that may have otherwise hurt you down to earth. So that, that is one of the, the big new ones, and I can go back to, you know, here are a couple, and I'll give you one more new one, but just that, that was one that was way too long. I'll do quicker on the others. The chair analogy. You know, it used to be we were all scared that there's not a lot of visible property damage on the back of your car. You know, it's the old, there's a you know a dent, but no big deal. And everybody's scared to death and didn't want to go to court on those because they thought they are going to lose them. And I've seen too many clients hurt badly in that very crash. And I thought, they're wrong. Why are they wrong? And I just spent time and I thought, ultimately, it's because it's the awkward, unexpected jarring that causes injury. It's not the bending of metal, period. And once I realized it was just a matter of then, how do I get that point across? And usually analogy is one, or, or is one of the best ways to get the point across is analogy. And that's the, I put someone, I tell the jury, I said, you know, I, I don't know why it is, but little kids love to sneak up on each other on the playground, shove them back. And they'll shove their buddy and then run off, and the buddy brushes himself off, chasing them across the playground, squealing and laughing. And I don't know why it's fun, especially them little boys. But you know what? Grown-ups don't sneak up on one another and shove them in the back unexpectedly. Why? Because someone's going to get hurt. Our necks aren't, backs aren't supple, subtle like supple like those young kids. It's like if someone was sitting in this chair and I turned the chair sideways. So if the person was sitting in it, the jury would see their ear. And I say, if if I was coming across this courtroom and someone had no idea I was coming to and sit in that chair, and I'm doing you know five to ten miles an hour, which I'd be running if I did it, I'm not going to do that. But and they had no idea, and I hit the and I hit the back of the chair like that. And they went, ow, what are you doing that hurt? How fair would it be for me? And then I turned the chair around and pointed to the jury to say, what are you talking about? That couldn't have hurt you. There's not a mark on the chair. I said, there's nothing fair about it because it's not about the mark on the chair. It's about the unexpected jarring and snapping at that hinge joint. People go, oh, I get it. So that's one of them that I would put on that top five list that really pays dividends in the world of heading off unfair arguments that otherwise would work. Another one, crick in the neck. Uh, It is a way for people to not poo-poo pain, not belittle pain. Pain's a big-ass deal. And a lot of people in the jury may have pain, but it wasn't thrust into their life unnaturally by the fault of someone else. It wasn't there one day, now it and it's never going away. That's different than I played football and I got a back that hurts now. That's just life. The other, someone did a civil wrong, not an accident, and changed that person's life forever. And so recognizing and making people understand that that pain, low-level pain that is not interfering so much with the doing as it is with the experience of doing, but the experience matters. There's a difference between enjoying a movie, sitting and uh, enjoying the same movie that you still sit there, but fidgeting and trying to get comfortable the whole time. And it's a lifetime of fidgeting and trying to get comfortable. And the experience of life changes, even though externally you can't see it, and they're still carrying on with life. They're bucking up, not giving up. And it's not the kind of imagery that interferes so much with the doing as it does with the experience of doing. So that framework takes all this social media out of the picture that they, they get posts of our clients laughing and smiling, doing all kinds of stuff like carrying canoes over their head. I've, you know, I've had everything you can imagine. That stuff doesn't scare me. As long as your client was telling the truth about it, those surveillance films, they do not scare me. So long as your client isn't caught in some bald faced line, if they are, I'm not showing up, but, but otherwise, they're not scary. So how do you bring all that together and simply make a jury understand having a little bit of pain is not interfering with what you're doing, but it damn sure is interfering with your enjoyment of life, and it is a big-ass deal? How do you get that across to a jury without just saying it and forcing it down your throat? An analogy. Crick in the neck analogy. This is in one, definitely in my top five. It's like a guy wake, sleeps wrong, wakes up in the morning, got a crick in his neck. And he moans. His wife says, "What's wrong?" He says, "Ah, I slept wrong. Got a crick in my neck." Oh, I'm sorry, honey. Oh, it's no big deal. Goes to work. Every little thing he does is there. Picks up his briefcase. He feels that he goes to change lanes and looks in his blind spot. He feels that he goes to his office and sits. He's uncomfortable after a bit. He gets up, feels some relief, but now standing's bottom. So he's up and down all day. Drives home. Same thing. Gets home. Wife says, "How was your day?" Okay. Other than this neck thing, I'm hoping it's gone tomorrow. This is no fun, well, honey. Maybe you better go to the doctor. I don't need to go to the doctor. I'm all right. Goes to bed. Wakes up day two. Wife hears him go, ah, what? I was hoping it'd be gone. That day, same thing all day. It's there with him all day long. You know what he doesn't do? He doesn't call in sick. You know what else he doesn't do? He's not walking or going, ow, 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 let me tell you about my neck. How many people say, you big baby, get a grip? No one has a clue. He's carrying on just like he did before he got the grip. Except his wife, he's got a, you know, their husband and wife, they share those things. No one else would know. But now at the end of the day, too, he's driving home and it's really starting to put him in a bad mood. He comes in the house and he's cranky with the kids. And wife says, what's the matter with you? He goes, I'm sorry, this thing's really getting on my nerves. Maybe you better go to the doctor. This time a little less about poor you and a little more when I want to crank in the house. He goes, no, nah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll behave. It'll, it'll be gone. Goes to bed, wakes up day three. Wife's brushing her teeth. She hears hallelujah. She goes, what? He goes, it's gone. Well, that's what this is like for my client, except there is no Hallelujah ever, and it didn't happen because he slept wrong, it happened because someone rammed him from behind minding his own business on the road that day, and it was thrust into his life unnaturally, and it's never going back. One day it wasn't there, now it is, and the rest of his life forever will have it. Now jurors, every one of them has woke up with a crick in their neck. Every one of them is like, I remember it was driving me crazy. Now get up and try to say, oh, wham, 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 you got a little pain. So that is definitely up in, a, in the top ones. Right, let me give you. Let me give you. I'll give you one more, two more. I think we're supposed to get to five. Baselines, reserves, and coping. That's a fairly new one, um, year or so, maybe two at most. Um, I get sick and tired of the defense exploiting the fact our client's not a perfect specimen of health. They're overweight. You know, they already had some physical problems, um, whatever the hell it is. They always want to make it sound like, your client's life was so bad before, what the hell difference does this make? How much worse it could be to add this little bit of a problem? And it's basically, you're unworthy of American full justice, and it sticks in my craw big time. And I, And I finally figured out couple things that really combat it. One of them I had and then I added this baseline. So one I had is what I call as is justice. I do it in jury selection. Just because now I want jurors then understand this is a good thing, not a bad thing, that you can get full justice even though you're not a perfect specimen of health because most of your jurors aren't perfect specimens of health. Say so we call it, I call it as is justice. It means that everyone knows what as is is. So you buy something off the use rack, you don't bring it back because it's not mint condition. And it's the same with someone out in the road. If someone hits them and hurts them, the fact that they aren't in the prime of their physical life and they may get hurt worse because they're more susceptible than somebody who was a perfect specimen of health, that's no defense at all. You take them the way you find them. That's why I call it as is justice. The fancy constitutional words are justice for all or equal justice. I just like to call it as is justice because it makes sense. Everyone can get full Justice, not some discount justice, real, full justice, even if they're not perfect specimens of hell. Now, you know, your jurors all agree. You've set the tone for it. The, the, I now then roll into this baselines, reserves, and copics. And I, I did this in a case with it where I had a guy that, it was a MedMal case, and he had fighting cancer from colon cancer. He had a colostomy bag. Um, and he was undergoing chemo, chemo treatment, and he died from his cancer came back. And the case had nothing to do with the cancer. It was a malpractice case where they nicked something and pulled a, a catheter out prematurely, and the guy ended up having to now have a urine bag that was just temporary for the rest of his life. But he dies in 18 months. So it's a survival action. We took when we took the case. It was a, it was a, he was alive. It was over. He's going to live the rest of his life with this um, urine catheter bag, but he already had a colostomy bag from the cancer. But he was now he had double problems forever. Well, then he dies. Now we got 18 months, and during the 18 months, he's got all this hell going on around him. So you can imagine what the defense's position was. They weren't offering any money, but it was a perfect chance to use this baselines, reserves, and coping. And we got a very good verdict, and I and I am convinced this framework, which is so fair, a framework, had a lot to do with it. And it goes like this: My client's life before he got all this this cancer, you know, his baseline was up. You know, he was wasn't a young man; he wasn't up here like when he was a kid. But his baseline was pretty good, and he had, as a result of that, he had all this in reserve. So that in this space in between was what he had in reserve, which means his ability to cope with things that would come along was much higher. But now he's already struggling with fighting for with cancer, fighting for his life. He's got a colostomy bag from the rectal cancer. He's got chemotherapy. And so his baseline is now way down here, which means he has very little left in reserves. So his ability to cope if you take more away is is much less. The impact is profound. And they did this to him in that little bit that was left. So of course it's had a huge impact. Of course it has. This is not an addition problem. This is a multiplication problem. This This is like someone who had one good eye and lost it, and then they lost their second eye. You don't say one plus one. They went from sighted to blind. This is a multiplication problem. And so the jury suddenly respected the fact that, and then I did my time's not all equal. You know, time's not equal. So when people are young, they have all the time in the world. They want to be older. They want to be grown up. They want to move fast. But when you're at the other end of the spectrum, like this gentleman fighting for his life is only 18 months left in life, every moment matters. That's why when you say goodbye after visiting your grandma, it's it's a big I love you hug from your grandma. You can't get them off of you because they know it may be the last goodbye. If there's an argument, the I'm sorry's come from the heart because they don't want to end on a bad note. That's why deathbed scenes are so moving in movies because the ultimate scarcity of time, of something most valuable, which is time on earth. And when time's running out, every moment matters. And this was thrusting into his life. When he had so little left in reserves to cope with it, and every moment matters. And that framing brought to life the reality of how bad this injury was, rather than just saying, well, what's the difference now? He's got an extra bag hanging off of him." And so that baselines, reserves, and coping work in any case where they're trying to diminish the value of your client's claim by trying to show all the other problems they already had unrelated.
0: What an incredible conversation so far, Keith. I'm really anxious to hear you talk about the remaining top five things that you share uh, in terms of insights you can give to trial lawyers to help block the defense and turn a case in your favor. Tune in to our next episode to hear the rest of my conversation with Keith.